So thank you for being here. This is week two in our series, No, Pe- no Perfect People Allowed. We're talking about how do we create a culture that, that welcomes people. And the whole series that we're, that we're talking about for the next today and the next two weeks leading up to Easter is what do we need to do to make people feel welcome to come to this house? We talked last week about how we're living in a post-Christian world, and so uh, this is going to be a little bit messier than times past. Are you with me? This is going to be a little bit different because it's, it's a different season. It's a different age uh, in, our, in our world, in this dispensation of time. And so for us to, to think about how the end time harvest is going to come, we have to understand it's going to come through broken people. It's going to come through people that are hurting just like you were at one time and just like I was at one time. And I want to give you just a little bit of recap from last week. And if you weren't here, you can go back and watch it online at intlfamilychurch.com. We archive all of our services there. But last week we talked about how we tend to write people off, but Jesus loves to write people in. We talked about Mary Magdalene, how he wrote her in to some of the most important scriptures. He loved her to the point where she was considered the apostle to the apostles. You know, we hear about James and John, Peter, and the rest of the guys, but there was a woman in that crowd that Jesus loved very dearly, and she got to participate and be a part of some of the most miraculous things that we read about in scripture because he saw something in her when everybody else saw something on her. We talked last week about how God wants to use his supernatural power in the lives of ordinary people. It's why he picks fishermen. It's why he picked blue-collar workers. It's why he picked people that other people would not have picked. God wants to demonstrate his super through your natural. Y'all going to help me preach today? God wants to put something so powerful inside of you that when people meet you, they realize that ain't so-and-so anymore. Something's different about them. Man, they talk different. They look different. They act different. There's something happening around them. Well, that's how we give glory to God is by uh, just offering ourselves up and saying, Lord, I ain't got it all together, but if you want to use me, I'm available. And in a moment's time, God's supernatural power can change not only your life, but what it's intended to do is change and impact the lives of those around us, in our neighborhoods, in our jobs, in our communities, and ultimately the world. We talked about the importance of being an authentic church and being real, that we don't come in here acting like we got it all together. We're all on a journey. Turn to your neighbor and say, that includes you. We're all on a journey. We talked last week briefly about how our church is not a museum for saints, but it's actually a hospital for sinners, that this is a place of refuge and hope for those that are hurting, those that are lost. This is an environment in which they can get the help that they need. And so knowing that, it gives us the opportunity to bring them to the hospital. If my wife went sick today, where would I take her? I'd take her to the hospital. We need to have that same mentality with the people that God puts in our path. Get them to where the healer is. Get them to where the great physician is. We also talked about people have names. They have stories. They're not just numbers to God. And we talked about how our church and the church as a whole needs to be known for what we're for, not for what we're against. There's enough churches that post what they're against And you know it before you ever walk in their doors. We want to be a place that we're known for what we are for. We're for people. We're for the brokenhearted. 
We're for the sick. We're for the destitute. We're for the lonely. We're for the hurting. We're for the distranged. The, the, I mean, I could go on and on. We exist for those kind of people. Guess what? That means you're welcome here. I said it last week. We all have some kind of issue. We all have something that we're working out. The Bible says we're working out our salvation. Am I going to heaven? Yes. I just want to do the best I can while I'm here. So let's continue today, and I ask you to, to jump in. I love your feedback. I love you talking to me, so I encourage you to do that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time we have today. Lord, I ask you to enlarge our hearts so that we would see people the way that you see them today. Lord, give us the ability to see past the, the surface and the facade. Help us to see the potential and the seeds of greatness that lie inside of every single one of your creations. Lord, give us boldness after today to step outside of our comfort zone and to reach somebody that needs to know you. Lord, I pray for myself. Give me strong voice. Give my vocal cord strength as I preach your gospel. Lord, give me a boldness by your Holy Spirit to communicate this at the tone and the level that you imparted it to me with urgency, consistency. In Jesus' name. Amen. As many of you know, me and my wife have moved to the Boston area about two years ago, a little over two years ago now. And, and, and this, is, this isn't a place that we ever thought we would end up, just being real. We like warm weather. And I think this last week, the devil was trying to tie us because our power was out for almost three days. And I'm saying, Lord, is this you sending us back south? Is this a sign? He said, no, that's not a sign. Suck it up. <laughs> So I did. I got a generator, and it's awesome. Um, so we, we, we moved here, and you know, we, my wife's from Houston. I'm from, from L.A. I tell people that I'm really from lower Alabama, Mobile, Alabama. And, and, and you know what? When we moved up to Boston, we don't know what Boston's like. You know, we, we're not been Northeasterners. We've been Southerners. We spent 10 years on the West Coast in Southern California where the beautiful people live. It's, 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 it's just a different climate here. And so one of the things we wanted to do is we wanted to see everything. We wanted to do what New Englanders do. We wanted to go to the mountains. We wanted to, to uh, go to the beaches, even though the water stinking cold. It's difficult to get in the water at the beach when it's like 40 degrees. And so we, we begin to ask people, what should we do? And so we've been down to Copley Square, and we've doing the tourist stuff. And one of the people, our friends said, you should take your son apple picking. I said, that sounds amazing, apple picking. And I had this, this vision in my mind that we're going to go to this beautiful orchard, and there's going to be hundreds of trees that are pruned, pruned perfectly, and there's going to be these polished golden apples everywhere. I really had that in my mind, like, this would be great. They're going to give us this cool wicker basket, and we're going to trim so long. You know, the day we went, it was so muddy. My shoes kept getting stuck. I thought they were going to come off. <laughs> the mindset that I had for what apple picking was going to be was not anything close to what it was. The truth is, is they just gave us a bunch of plastic bags, charged us $25 a bag, and said, have fun. I'm thinking $75 later, my son's covered in mud. I'm covered in mud. This is horrible. <laughs> the worst part of it was is there wasn't any good apples. <laughs> I don't know if there's a specific date and time that you should go apple picking, but we didn't go on that date and time because there wasn't any apples that were even reachable. 
I mean, I'm holding Hunter on my shoulders. And, Come on, get that one. There's one. Up. Hurry up, Daddy's arms are going to fall off, you know? And not only do we have a hard time filling the bag because all the apples seemed like they were, something was jacked up. I'd reach up and finally get a hold of this apple to only realize that I, that I only saw one side of it. I'd reach up and grab an apple like this and pull it down. And from a distance, it looked good. But then you realize, man, the skin is all wrinkly. It was all wrinkly. And, and, and it was, it was kind of depressing because 90% of the apples that we picked had something wrong with them. Y'all ever been apple picking? Am I telling the truth? Yeah, $75 later and you're like, we got a bunch of bad apples. You know, that's what my grandmother used to refer to people as. When there was someone she didn't like or someone that she was skeptical about, she'd call them bad apples. It was kind of a warning. I want to read you this. This is the definition of, of what the internet says a bad apple is. A person. <laughs> a person who is not wholesome, honest, trustworthy, especially one who has an adverse influence on others. I, I grew to the point of frustration, apple picking, because I couldn't find any good apples. And we only found a handful that actually looked like what we found in the store. And so, I, I, you know, I think this is a good illustration of how a lot of times Christians look at people. Hear me now. We look at people based on what we can see. And from a distance, they look great. But then when you get to know them, you're like, man, they're all pitted. They got all kinds of junk going on. And what do we do? We cast them aside and say, oh, that's a bad apple there. And we pick another one. We say, oh, look, here, here's another good friend. And you get to know them and realize they've been beat and bruised and battered for the last 20 years of their life. And what you couldn't see from the future, it means, man, there's something going on underneath the surface. And what do we do? We cast them aside. And then we see somebody else and say, man, finally somebody connect with you. You realize, man, their life is tainted. It's not who I thought they were. And this is how a lot of people treat people. We pick them and then we cast them aside because we can't see the use in them. Listen to this scripture I want to read you in James chapter 5. In verse 7 out of the Berean literal Bible, it says, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord... Behold the farmer, he waits for the precious fruit of the earth and being patient for it until it receives the early and the latter rain. I love this because it gives us a clear picture on how God sees people. God doesn't see bad apples, he sees precious fruit. If we're going to reach the people that God's called us to reach, it means we're going to have to have a, a perspective and, and, and an eyesight and a view of people exactly how Jesus sees them. Amen. Let me give you a little pointer right here at the beginning. If you can't see people as precious fruit, you'll never have the opportunity to reach them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. It's a bold statement. But as long as we have stereotypes and labels on people, what those stereotypes and labels do is keep us and block us from seeing the true them. Jesus sees people as precious fruit. I want to challenge you today in this message that you would open your ears and open your eyes, not your natural eyes, but your, your spiritual eyes. Because there's a lot of people in here, including myself, that were very judgmental. We're very judgmental based on one thing, what we can see. We can only see so much, so we can only judge so much. But Jesus went right to the core of people seeing them 
as precious fruit. My main takeaway is this today. To reach people the way Jesus does, we need to see them the way that he sees them. I, I, I changed this last night about 11 o'clock because in my notes I had wrote, to reach people the way Jesus did, we need to see them the way that he did. That's past tense. Jesus still sees people as precious fruit. And if we are the hands and the feet of Jesus, as we claim to be, then we have to take on the on-site and the visual of how Jesus sees them today. That scripture in James, it says, he waits, he's patient. He's patient with every person because it's the former in the latter rain that he's working on. You could say it this way. He's going to start the church and end the church with the same kind of people. And they're not perfect. But they are precious. Every single person that God has created is precious in his sight. Jesus sees the good in everyone, even if it's just a little. When I was looking at the apples, a little bit turned me off enough to cast it away. But Jesus sees these apples as, hey, maybe there is a spot on it, but man, if you get closer to it, you realize and you cut it open and dive in, there's seeds of greatness inside of here. There's seeds of, of, of greatness that reside on the inside of here and they need somebody else to pull them out. Let's jump right into this. Let's talk today about how to see people the way that Jesus sees them. You ready? Number one, God doesn't look at a person's outward appearance. He looks at their heart. Say heart. He looks at their heart. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. It says, but God told Samuel, looks on everything. Don't be impressed with Jesse's boys based on their looks or their stature, for I've already eliminated them. God judges a person differently than humans do. See, men and women look at the face, but God looks into the heart. This story is about Jesse and a group of boys that hear about the prophet coming to not only their town, but to their specific farm. How do you know they lived on a farm? Well, they got sheep. This was a trek to where they were. Jesse heard about this. Hey, the king is, is going to be changing order. Saul's still on the throne. So this was probably done incognito. Do you think Saul is going to allow him to anoint somebody else while he's still on the throne? No, man, God was doing something behind the scenes, looking for a nobody to turn into a somebody. And all of a sudden, David is out there tending sheep, and one of his brothers comes all dressed up, decked out, hair slicked over, probably did some push-ups before the interview. That's what guys do. You go to the beach, you get right in the parking lot, and they get down and drop 20 before they take their shirt off. No? Just me? All right. Maybe some of you should. <laughs> Here comes his brother saying, hey, 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 you need to come with us. I'm busy. I can't leave the sheep. What kind of dysfunction did they have in their home? Hear me. What kind of relationship would David have with his father, Jesse, who didn't even see him fit to be invited? Talk about an awkward situation. All your brothers are paraded there, dressed up, and here is the prophet with the horn of oil, and he's there to anoint the head of the next king of Israel, and you get required to come last minute? You didn't get to clean up? You didn't get to take a shower? 
You didn't give to give a nice speech. You had no time to do the 20 push-ups. And all of a sudden, you find yourself in a place that you don't belong. And instantly, God says, that's the one. That's him. Dump it, man. Quick, hurry. Get it over his head. And bam, drops the oil on him. And at that moment, God said something, not only to Jesse in his household, but to the whole nation of Israel, that God isn't looking for somebody that has it all together on the outside. He's looking for someone that has a genuine and true heart to be used at whatever God wants him to do. If that's how God was picking kings of Israel back in the day, how do you think he's picking people today? I'll tell you, the same exact way. Jesus, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Just because we live in 2018 and we can take care of ourselves better than they could back then doesn't mean he's changed his list of qualifications, which is nothing except availability, except for an open heart, except for someone with an honest heart saying, Lord, whatever you want to do, if it's little, I'll do it. If it's big, I'll do it. If it brings me no glory, if it brings you glory, whatever it means. That's the heart he's looking for. See, Jesse saw his son David as the small one in stature, the weakest of his brothers. He saw his son as the least educated, the one with the most inexperience in life. You could say it this way. One theologian said he saw his son as a simple-minded sheep herder. But God, but God. But God saw something different in David. He saw a heart of a servant as he was defender of the sheep. He saw the tenacity of a giant slayer. He saw the heart of a king, the keeper of the Ark of the Covenant. He saw him as the conqueror of Jerusalem, the first king to bring the north and south together and unify the nation of Israel. He saw all that in a little boy covered in sheep dung with a staff. Coming off the field. Jesus is wanting us to see people for who they really are, not what they pretend or evoke us to want them to, I can't talk like that, to want us to think that they are. Think about how many people go on first dates. You ever remember your first date? Nobody? Y'all didn't go on dates? Bob does. Got dressed up, right? Took a shower. Probably got a haircut. Probably cleaned the car. Probably polished our boots. Probably did all of the above. Why? I want to make a good first impression. I want her to like me. But how many of you went on a first date? And man, you picked a girl up and man, she's knocked out gorgeous. Like, wow. I think that's what Adam said when he presented Eve. He said, whoa, man. (laughs) Right over their heads, Pastor Tom. Think about this. You went on the first date and you're like, man, on the outside, it looks awesome. And then on the second date, she starts belching during the dinner. And you're like, whoa, wait a second. (laughs) Hold on a second. And then she starts talking and the more you get to know her, I mean, she's into some weird stuff. Anybody? And then you realize like, wait a second, fourth or fifth date, this isn't who I thought I was going out with because you finally get to see the heart of somebody. This is the thing that God is saying to us. Get over the pretenses. Get over the outward and begin to look at the heart. If we're going to reach people the way that Jesus does, focus on the heart, 
not the outward appearance. Number two, well, God sees a person's potential when all they can see is their problems. To reach people, we're going to have to give them an image of who God sees them as in a picture and present them with who they could be because all they see is their problems. And all of the excuses that they give for, not God, for God not using them is based on circumstances or situations in which they found themselves or find themselves in. Case in point, Judges chapter 6. It says, one day the angel of the Lord came down and sat under Oprah's tree. That's not what it says. It says that God came down and sat under the oak in Oprah that belonged to Joash, the Abzerite, whose son Gideon was threshing wheat in the wine press. Out of sight from the Midianites, the angel of God appeared to him and said, God is with you, almighty warrior. Oh man, Gideon replied, wait, wait, hold on, with, with me? Who are you talking to, man? I'm the only one in here. With me, my master? I mean, if God was with us, then, then why has all this happened to us? Here comes the excuses. Where are all the miracle wonders that our parents and grandparents told us about? Telling us, didn't God deliver us from Egypt? The fact is, man, God had nothing to do with us. He's turned us over to Midian. But God, everybody say, but God. Oh, man. God faced him directly and said, go in the strength that is yours and save Israel from Midian. Haven't I just sent you? Gideon said again, man, I, I, I'm not sure if you got the right guy. You know who I am? I mean, how and with what could I ever save Israel? Look at me. Look at me. I mean, my clan's the weakest in the Manasseh, and I'm the run to the litter. But God said to him again, I'll be with you. Believe me, you'll defeat Midian as one man. This wasn't the first day that Gideon was hiding. We didn't just happen to find him on an off day in a wine press, hiding in fear from the Midianites. This had been going on for years. Not only was he insecure about himself, he was insecure about his family. I'm the run of the litter. And my family is the, the, the least in the whole town of Manasseh. And ain't you seen what's been happening to us as a people? I mean, God ain't been around for years. It's been generations since God did something for us. And here you're saying to me, I'm going to deliver Midian? Here's the thing. He had to see himself the way that God saw him. Let me tell you this, for you to accomplish what God has for you to do, you have to see yourself in the way that God sees you. For others around us to be empowered to do and fulfill their destiny, there's an obligation on me and you as a believer to help them see a picture of who they are in Christ. So many people miss their opportunity to do something great because they never found their identity in Him. Almighty warrior. That's what God called him. Me? Who me? What? He said, look at me. Look at me. How many people do we know that that's their excuse? Look at me. I, I ain't from a good town. I come from a broken family. My parents didn't even have any money. I'm just happy to be alive. 
And yet we use these as excuses as why God can't use us. Or better yet, we project that onto people based on an outward appearance without ever getting to know them what God wants to do in them. We're looking still at the outside, the skin, the surface, but if you crack it open and realize all the seeds of potential that are in there, they have to be drawn out. They have to be called out. John Maxwell says that only one out of 10 people, hear me, only one out of 10 will ever reach their full potential in life by themselves or on their own. The other nine are going to require help from those around them. It's a powerful statement because we have a lot of people thinking, well, if they want to do something with their life, they'll get off their butt and do it. They'll pull themselves up by the bootstraps. Listen, only one out of 10 can pull themselves up by the bootstraps. Only one out of 10 can get the motivation to do something for themselves. The other nine of us, myself included, need other people to help encourage us and stop putting the facade on and say, well, look at me, look at me, I'm a nobody. Someone to say, oh, I see something in you. I had a young man in my church a few years ago, and he, he was coming and serving, was on our setup and teardown team. One of the most faithful men in ministry that I've ever met in my life. Gets engaged to a great girl in our church. I mean, the church is all excited. It's one of the girls from a church. This guy there, getting engaged, getting married. It's going to be pumped. And right in the middle of it, man, she calls the wedding off. He's hurt. He's crushed. Didn't do anything wrong. Nothing happened. She just wasn't ready. Doesn't time. Whatever. And he didn't come to church the next week. And then the week after, and I thought, man, this guy, I need to call him. So I sent him a message, hey, man, praying for you, blah, 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 nothing. And then I figured, well, fine, if he don't want to come to church, that's his problem. Maybe he did do something wrong. I'm getting judgmental. Listen to me. I'm, I'm a human being. I started thinking, well, maybe you know, this isn't the place for him, blah, 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 blah. And the Holy Spirit one day said, you call him and tell him I'm not done with him. You call him and tell him what's happened to him in this past season does not define his future. And so I called him. I said, I love you, man. I believe in you. He didn't answer the phone. I left this on a voicemail. I want you to know I miss you. Our team misses you. I don't care what happened. Girl or no girl, I'm here for you. Whatever you need, I see something in you. I want to help you. He came to church that next week, gave me a big hug, alligator tears. He said, Pastor Josh, I felt so ashamed. Because everybody knew we were engaged and now we're not engaged. I couldn't even walk through the parking lot because the parking lot guys are my buddies. I couldn't even show up there. I've been just hanging out and wallowing in self-pity. But you called me, man, and something came alive on the inside of me. And you know what? He started serving again and started serving more and committing to more teams, getting tied in with community. Today, that young man is a youth pastor at that church, reaching young people. Listen, it's our job. To pull those seeds out and show them, say, hey, dummy, I know what you look on the outside, but that's no excuse because I know what's on the inside. You're not defined by the bruises and the nicks and the holes and the tears. I see that, but I see much deeper than that. That's what Jesus did. When he called Peter and John, he went to their job. They're fishing, they're working. Hey, man, you guys like fishing? Hey, I got something better for you. We're going to go fishing for me. Drop your nets, come follow me. What is that saying? I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to take care of you. You're going to be better off with me than you are by yourself. What if that was our anthem as a church? 
You're better with me. You're better with me, Justin. Tom, you're better with me. You guys are better with me. Why? Because Jesus is with me, and I want to help cultivate those seeds of greatness. I want you to get a clear picture of who you are in Christ. It's what happened to Gideon. It's the motivational speech that Gideon had to have before he would commit to leading an army. Up to this point, he couldn't even lead himself. And we find him a few chapters later charging into the camp at Midian with clay torches, uh, candles with clay pots on them, smashing these pots, going for it like come hell or high water, we're doing this, to find that they were fighting themselves. To find that they were fighting themselves. Here's the great thing about this story that I love, and I, I I can't preach here, I can't camp here, but here's the thing about you and me. What God's called you to do probably has nothing to do with what you're going to do anyways. He's already done it all. Had you told Gideon, hey, I just need you to ride in from the, from the top with your 300 troops and shout and scream saying, you know, here comes the Lord, smash the pots, and you're going to find everybody fighting themselves? That would have been a lot easier conversation. <laughs> so wait, you just want me to ride a horse and scream and holler and smash a pot with a bunch of crazy people? I could do that. But see, God doesn't show us all that. What he shows us is who we are right now so that he can use us at a pre-appointed, predestined time. Here's a statement that'll blow your mind. It's not enough to believe in God. You must believe that God believes in you. Oh, I'm a Christian. I'm a believer. Great. What are you doing for God? Well, I can't really do anything. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. No, 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 you're not a sinner saved by grace. You're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, fully equipped and resourced and empowered to do something dynamic right now. We believe in God. Great. Let me ask you a question. Do you know that God believes in you? Because when people find out that there's somebody cheering them on, they run a little bit harder. They run a little bit faster. They get to work a little bit quicker. When you're appreciated and valued, It changes the game. That's what Jesus did. He appreciated them. He valued them. He encouraged them. It's not enough to believe in God. You must know that he believes in you. Number three, Jesus saw people through the lens of love and not a lens of judgment. Our pastor did a series this last year about the lens of love. If you're not loving people, you can't reach them. If you see them with hurt and pain and distraught and and distraction and lost and messed up and whatever other words we want to use to describe our friends, that's where the line gets drawn and that's where we leave them. But when we see them through the eyes of love, it causes us to do something about it. Many times in the scripture, the Bible says that Jesus was moved with, what's compassion? Compassion is love in action. You can love somebody, but when you're compassionate for it, maybe you take that love and you prove it. You do something about it. I, I'm compassionate towards, towards this. Well, I'm going to help them. I'm going to do something. It's more than just saying, hey, I love you. We're good at this, aren't we? Love you. Love you. Praying for you. Right? As Christians, this is our lingo. Brother, sister, to see you guys. Love you. Love you. We throw it around like it's crazy, like it's just, I love tacos. I love tacos, okay? When you talk about burgers, my wife, she loves burgers. But I'm not going to do something for a burger. 
or for a taco? What's the difference between the love of God for people and the love of God for a taco? It moves me to do something for them. It moves me to get outside of my comfort zone and do something for them. Here's a little synopsis of 1 Corinthians 13, what we call the love chapter. If you're new to, 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 to Christianity or walking with the Lord, this is a great chapter to read because it gives you a view of how God sees people. It says love never gives up. We give up on people pretty quickly. It says love cares more for others than it does for itself. Love doesn't want what it doesn't have. Love doesn't strut. It doesn't have a swelled head. There's a lot of cocky Christians. Hear me say this. We act like we're better because we got something they ain't got. And that's true. We are in a better place in life because we've received a free gift. But the truth is, they can receive the same free gift. Nothing is better about you. That's, that's, that's what we're talking about. We walk around like, well, I'm a Christian. They're just a sinner. Yeah, but you were a sinner. Come on now. This says that Christians and the love of God doesn't have a swelled head of, I'm better than somebody else. You're not any better. You got the same ticket for salvation that's available to anybody. All they got to do is go to the ticket window and pick it up. You ever been to a concert and you got general admission? And you got that earlier, you got there earlier, and you got to stand out in front of the stage. Everybody heard the same show. But for whatever reason, we think we have better seats than they did because we got there early and stood down front. It's the same show, heard the same music, experienced the same vibes with the same great people. It's the same thing with Christianity. It's a free gift to all of us. When we understand that love doesn't strut and doesn't talk with a swelled head, we'll treat people differently. Understanding we're all on a journey. It doesn't force itself on others. Love doesn't force itself on others. This is the reason I, I said this earlier today in the first service. I don't like megaphone preaching. I don't like this turn or burn kind of preaching. Because what it lacks is relationship. What it lacks is the value that these people are humans and they have a name and they're not a number. What it lacks is a connection with someone on a human level. But when we just barcade people with the gospel of, hey, turn or burn, you better repent, you better get your life right. Listen, what we're doing is we're projecting God on people. I believe in preaching the gospel to the level that they hear the gospel. But it's not my job to convict people's hearts. Hear me say this. A lot of Christians have their job description mixed up with the job description of the Holy Spirit. We're called to preach and be ambassadors and love people at the highest level. It is the job of the Holy Spirit to convict them in their sin and cause them to make a change. You want to reach your family? Stop preaching to them and just start loving on them. You want to reach your husband that's an alcoholic and you're tired of it because he won't come to church? Get him a beer and shut your mouth. And just love on him. He already knows what he's doing ain't right. He doesn't need you to remind them. Listen, when we understand that, that we have a role and God has a role, we, we need to make sure we stay in our lane. Paul said, I planted. I loved on him. 
I let them know they had a purpose. I let them know I cared for them. Apollos came behind me and encouraged them and loved on them. But make no mistake about it, God is the one that gave the increase. God's the one that changed their heart. God's the one that has the supernatural power. I don't have that ability to do that. So let's make sure that as Christians, we stay in our lane, do what we're called to do, and love at the highest level, and let God do what only he can do. Man, I wish y'all would shout about that. This is important that we get this. This is a mindset. We're not better than anybody else. Love does not keep the score of sins of others. It can stop right there. I won't. Love doesn't revel when others grovel. It doesn't take pleasure in the flower of truth. It puts up with anything. It trusts God always. It always looks for the best. It never looks bad. It never looks back, but it keeps going to the end. A few years well, the year out of high school, I graduated high school, I moved to, to another state to go to college. And just like most college students, I had free reign to do what I want. And so what did I do? I did what I want. I didn't have anybody telling me what time to come in, where to spend my money, and who not to hang out with. And so I took full liberty, just like a lot of you did. And I went wild. I spent all the money I had. I went and partied with a bunch of people I shouldn't have partied with. I got a bunch of credit cards I had no business getting. I started swiping that thing, ringing up debt. And in the second semester of my freshman year, I found myself sick. Sick enough to where I couldn't get out of bed and really do anything for myself. My kidneys and, and my liver were jacked up and just all kinds of stuff. And the doctor said, I recommend you, you drop out of school and go home because you're going to need some help. You're going to need some people to take care of you for the next few months till your body recuperates and resets. I had to call my parents and ashamedly say, I, I'm dropping out of school because I'm too sick because I've been partying too much. And the money you paid, I wasted it. And the money that I had, it's all gone. And I need your help. And just a few days later, someone came and we, we drove my stuff back and I moved to Alabama where my parents were, the last place I wanted to be. And most of the day, I found myself on the couch just sleeping and resting. I was down to about 130 pounds. Just didn't have a lot going for me at that time. And, and a gentleman showed up at my house. His name was Kevin Cooley. And my dad had just hired him as the youth pastor at our church. And Kevin showed up, and he was totally different than the last youth pastor. Because the last youth pastor, man, it was always, you better stop screwing around. You know you're going to pay for that one day. You know those people you're hanging out with, they're no good. Bad apples. You know, if you keep going down this track where this is going to end, it was all judgment. Every week at youth ministry, every single Wednesday night, it was that way. It was judgment. Maybe you left beat down. He was like, dear God, I don't think I want to come back here again. That guy's a jerk. But this guy was different. He called me and said, can I come to the house? Can I hang out? I'll bring some food. What kind of food do you like? He brings the food I like. We sit down. We play Xbox. We, I think we were actually playing PlayStation 2 at that time. That tells you how long ago it was. It had just come out. Gran Turismo was a race game. We would play this thing all night. He'd stay and hang out and just loved me. Never asked me while I was home what happened at school, where my money went, why I partied, why. He didn't care about it. He just loved me. For three months, he loved me. And when I was able to go back to church and, and function as a normal human being, guess where I wanted to go serve? With him. With him because I felt good around him. I felt empowered around him. He, he pulled something out of me that nobody else pulled out of me. To this day, as I stand here as a pastor on staff of this church, I owe Kevin Cooley so much because he saw something in me when I couldn't see it in myself. How many people are like me that are sitting on a couch, drowning in self-pity, and all they're looking for is a cheerleader, 
Oh, they're looking for somebody to motivate them and encourage them to be who God's called them to be. Jesus never judged people, treated people like they were his friends, like they were his family. He loved them where they were even though they continued to screw up over and over and over. Think about these disciples that he had to put up with. For a year and a half, man, he had to put up with these guys nonstop. They go into one town and James and John say, you want us to call down fire and burn this place up? These people are horrible. Let's kick off the dust like you said. Let's shake it out, man. If that's how they talk to Jesus in private, think about how they were talking during the church services. Peter, cuss a little girl, stabbing a dude in the ear. This was nonstop. Judas stealing money. I mean, this goes on and on. We could go down the whole list. Jesus put up with people in their junk. He loved people where they were. There wasn't an ounce of judgment in him. Number four, and I'll close with this. Jesus chose the outcast and the failure, and we tend to look for people that are popular with success. If I was to have you pick 12 people to further the gospel, right now, who would you pick? For most of us, we pick successful people and that people that have their stuff together on the outside. Jesus did the opposite. And Paul says it this way. He said, take a good look, friends. Look at who you were when God called you into this life. I don't see many of the brightest and best among you. Not many influential, not from high society families. Isn't it obvious that God deliberately chose men and women that the culture overlooks, exploits, and abuses them? He chose the nobodies to expose the hollow pretensions of the somebodies. This should make it quite clear that that none of you get by with blowing your own horn before God. Everything, everything that we have, our right thinking, our right living, the clean slate, the fresh start, it all comes by of the way of Jesus Christ. God chooses the imperfect so that he gets the glory. We are to be representations of God's glory in the earth. When people look at our lives, it shouldn't draw attention to, oh man, look at him. It should be look at God in him because I know him. That man I know. I know his failures. I know his struggles. I know his thoughts. I know his family. I know his habits. But something about him is is different. You know what the difference is? The glory of God resides in that man. God's whole purpose in choosing the imperfect, the outcast, the underdog is intentional so that normal society looks at abnormal people and sees a supernatural work taking place in their life. My prayer is that for the next two weeks as you think about Easter Sunday, that a name or a face would come up and that you would invite them. In fact, we created these little cards. They're outside in the foyer. It just says no perfect people allowed. And today when you leave, I'd love for you to go out there and put a name on a card that you're praying about. And a name of a card of somebody you're going to bring on Easter Sunday. I'm just going to put one stipulation in here, okay? Don't bring somebody to church that knows Jesus. Don't bring somebody that goes to another church because you think our service is going to be better and it's going to be cooler and they're going to love it. Would you bring a lost person? 
we have five services, but I can tell you this, there won't be enough seats in the services to fill everybody. Let's make sure that the seats are filled with those that need Jesus. God's looking for people that are available. I said it last week, he's not calling qualified people. He's qualifying called people. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, let me just challenge you one moment. It's our job to love people. And it'll take us a lifetime to see people the way that Jesus saw them and the way that Jesus still sees them. But our, our, our life should be focused on this, to be as impactful, as relevant, and as reaching as Jesus was. Jesus was the life of the party. People loved him. From most of the Gospels, we find him crowded by three to 5,000 people everywhere he went. And many times in the Scriptures, it said he would depart from the crowd to get away just to have some alone time. People loved him. Why? Because he loved them first. If we're going to reach people, it's going to take us getting a new perspective and seeing people the way that Jesus saw them. I pray that you would join us and invite somebody that needs to know the Savior and the love that he has for them in our Easter services in the next two weeks. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I want to give you the opportunity. If you're here today and you say, man, I need Jesus. I don't feel qualified. I feel insecure. I, 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 I've been trying to do this life on my own and I need some help. I got good news for you. Jesus came and died for your sins and he rose from the dead to give you the help you need in this season of your life. And it's a free gift. There's no strings attached. All you got to do is say, I'll take it. Lord, I'll take that. I, I believe you did that for me. I believe in you. And so today, if you're here and you say, man, pray for me. I want to I make Jesus part of my life. I want to do things his way. It sounds like he loves people. I want to love people. I want to be loved. All you got to do is accept that. Would you join me today? I'm going to pray a prayer here in just a minute. If you say, pastor, include me in that prayer. Pray for me. Would you just raise your hand and put it up? Put it right back down. Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. I see you. Absolutely. I got you, buddy. Anybody else you say, pray for me, include me in that prayer. Yes, ma'am. I need Jesus. Yes, ma'am. Got you, got you, got you. Yes, sir. Right here on the front. I got you. Yes, sir. Say, Pastor, include me. I don't want another day to go by doing life on my own. I want to do life the way it was intended to be made. Anybody else? Last call. You say, include me in that prayer. Yes, ma'am. I got you. Yes. I got you. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am, on the front row. Got you. Yep, I see you. Lots of hands. Would you join me today? Whether you've prayed this prayer a hundred times or whether this is your first time, connect your heart to your mouth. Say, Father God, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins and was raised from the dead so that I could lead a successful life Right now, Father, today, I ask you to forgive me of anything that I've done against you and your word and your plan for my life. Today, I choose you. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. God bless you guys. Thank you so much.